All right, so guys, we're in First Peter today. We're going to finish chapter one today in First Peter. If you want to go ahead and turn there, First Peter chapter one verse twenty-two. We'll look at those verses here in a few moments. I'm going to begin today by reading a short, by way of introduction, a short illustration. Uh, Charles Spurgeon on the Word of God. The Word of God ever living. He says this, How wonderfully has the Lord provided for the continuance of the vegetable world. He causes the plant to scatter, broadcast a multitude of seeds, and bids the winds convey them far and wide. The fowls of the air are commissioned to bear berries and fruits, to their proper soils, and even to bury them in the earth, while the scores of four-footed creatures engaged in storing up food for themselves become planters of trees and propagators of plants. Seeds bear a charmed life about them. They will germinate after being buried for centuries. They have been known to flourish when turned up from the borings of wells, from the depth of hundreds of feet, and when ponds and lakes have been dried, An undrowned vegetable life has surprised the beholders by blossoming with unknown flowers. Can we imagine that God has been thus careful of the life of the mere grass of the field, which is the very emblem of decay, and yet is negligent of His Word, which liveth and abideth forever? It is not to be dreamed of. Truth, the incorruptible seed, is ever scattering itself. Every wind is laden with it. Every breath spreads it. It lies dormant in a thousand memories. It preserves its life in the abodes of death. The Lord has but to give the word, and a band of eloquent men shall publish the gospel. Missionaries and evangelists will rise in abundance like the warriors who sprang from the fabled dragon's teeth. Converts will spring up like flowerets at the approach of spring. Nations shall be born in a day, and truth and God, the Lord of truth, shall reign forever. Really, just a good introduction to what we're going to be talking about today. Just the reality that, that you know, God's Word, really just a picture of what the prophet Isaiah tells us, that His Word will go forth. And it will accomplish His purpose as it goes forth. It will not return empty to Him. And so we're going to be talking about the Word of God today. How it is living, how it is enduring, uh, and how it is the means that God uses us or uses to really transform our lives from regeneration to sanctification. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today in a large part is the Word of God. Before we look at verse 22, I always want to try to review where we've been real quickly. Obviously this chapter, the context of this book is, again, Peter's comforting these readers. He's trying to give these readers who are being persecuted by Nero throughout the Roman provinces, he's trying to comfort them. That's what we always have to remember as we're reading these, these scriptures. He's talked about the great salvation that they have in Christ, their great inheritance that they have. We've talked about that. 
that they were redeemed. We looked at last week that, that, that we were redeemed the very blood of Christ. It cost the Son of God His life. And so we should, we should approach God as our Father. We should approach Him also as the one who will hold us accountable for how we live our life. And this should produce a healthy fear, a healthy reverence when we understand that, again, what it costs to redeem us. So that's where we were last week. Talking about the cost of our redemption. The one who was right, he was predetermined before the foundation of the world to redeem us through his blood. And it's because of him that we are in God. It's because of Christ. We came through him. He is the only pathway to God. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And so Peter was encouraging his readers with this that it's at the end of verse 21, that, or verse 21, who through him, through Christ, we are believers in God who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory. Remember His resurrection and His ascension. He reigns as King and as Lord. And He says, he, we left off last week, He said, so that your faith and hope are in God. Our faith and hope are in God and on the risen Christ. That's where we have our faith. And so, we'll start there today, guys. If, if you guys wouldn't mind standing, we'll read these four verses here. And then look at it. The title of the message is The Source of Our Love. Because we see, we will see the imperative in the verse is to love one another. And so, but we're going to look at the source of our love today. So verse 22 says this. He says, Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the Word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the Word which was preached to you. You guys can be seated. Father, please help us, Lord, today, Lord, as we look at Your Word. I pray, Lord, that You will give us understanding that Your Holy Spirit, God, would help us to apply what we read, Father. Lord, help me to preach Your Word to Your your precious people, Lord, that they would hear it, God, that it would be transforming in their lives, Father, and that, and that Christ would be glorified here today and in our lives. In Jesus' name, Amen. <clears throat> so I want to start off with a question. The first thing, as we look at verse 22, verse 22 reads, the first part of verse 22 since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls. Purified your souls. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start off by, by way of a question that I think is really important is um, to ask ourselves, everybody here, has your soul been purified? Has your soul been purified? So we'll, we'll spend a few moments answering that question, looking at what he's, what he's referring to in verse 22. He says, since you have an obedience to the truth. An obedience to the truth, guys. Just to cut right to the chase, he is saying, since you have been saved. Okay, This is what this phrase is talking about. Since you have been saved. That phrase, obeying the truth. You can see it consistently used in the Scriptures to refer to the Gospel itself. Have you obeyed the Gospel? The Gospel message. This is what Peter's getting at. Since you have an obedience... To the truth purified your souls. I'm going to read a, a few scriptures real quickly. Um, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 7, he says this, You were running well. 
Who hindered you from obeying the truth? And if you know anything about Galatians, you know really the context of the whole book, and if you look at the first six verses in that chapter, he's dealing with the gospel. He's dealing with obedience to the simple truth of the gospel. That we are justified by grace through faith. That's what the whole context of that, that letter is. In Ephesians 1.13, Paul says this, In Him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you are sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. What I want us to see in the Scriptures to help us, it will help you when you're, when, you're, when you're reading it for yourself, is, is the whole idea to obey the truth is to believe it. To obey the truth is to believe it. The Gospel in particular. When you see that phrase. You can see it real clearly in Romans chapter 10, verses 15 and 16. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news. Or they did not all obey the Gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? Just to to help us simply see that we obey the Gospel when our faith and hope are in God. As it says in verse 21. So this whole idea of obeying the truth It's simply believing the Gospel. Those terms are used interchangeably. And he says this, he says, since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls. Our souls are purified, in other words, when we believe. Okay? When we believe, our souls are purified. But it's real important to understand this phrase. In the Greek, it's a perfect participle that describes a past action with continuing results. Okay? It's a past action that has continuing results. Think of justification, sanctification. But it all starts the moment we obey the truth of the Gospel. He cleansed our past and then He enables us to live a godly life. Right? Through His Spirit and as we'll see, through His Word. So it's the whole idea of this. If you guys have listened to Paul Washer. Much in the past you've heard him say, which is it's very true, that, that how do you know you've truly repented is that you keep on repenting. How do you know you've truly believed is that you continue to believe. It's a work that God starts and then continues. This whole purifying starts at the moment of salvation, but it doesn't end there. I think Ezekiel makes it real clear in Ezekiel chapter 36. He gives us a real clear picture in this picture of the new covenant. Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27. We see it all in these three in these three scriptures here. He says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So we see this moment of conversion, regeneration, where God purifies us through the new birth. But then He says this in verse 27, I will put My Spirit within you and cause you to walk in My statutes. And you will be careful to observe My ordinances. So we see the very reality that this whole 
Purification is really a picture of salvation. It happens at conversion. It happens at the moment of regeneration. It's a work of God. But it has, again, continuing results. And so so the first question I ask is, has your soul been purified? Is this true of you? Has your soul been purified? Have you obeyed the truth of the Gospel by believing it? I think it's only appropriate to start there. What would be the consequence of not obeying the Gospel? I think we all know. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 talks about the return of Christ. The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the Gospel. It says they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. So this whole idea of believing the Gospel, obeying the Gospel, this is what Peter is referring to. Since you have in obedience to the truth, you have believed the message that he just talked about in verse 21. Your faith and your hope are in God, in the Gospel, what Christ has done. You have obeyed this message of the Gospel. Your souls are... You you have purified your souls. And if you have, if your soul has been purified, we can see one of the results. You will have a sincere love of the brethren. You will have a sincere love of the brethren. This is one of the effects of having your soul purified through the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, since you have an obedience to the truth, purify your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. That just means a genuine, sincere love apart from hypocrisy. It's where we get the word Philadelphia. This is a brotherly love. A brotherly, affectionate love. In other words, this is what is implanted in us at conversion. That we have this brotherly affection. Think back to your conversion, okay? Some of you guys that are, you know, and as I say, when you're when you're when you're converted as a real young child, maybe you don't see the, the contrast. But think back to your day when when the Lord saved you and your desires and your, your love for other Christians, how it changed. I mean, mine was real drastic. I didn't want anything to do with what you know what I would referred to now as God's people, Christians. I I felt uneasy, right? The the light. But that was one of the first things that I noticed when I was converted is I had this love for Christians. You're around them for just a few minutes and and there's just this affection for them. And that's what he's talking about here. The sincere love of the brethren. This is going to be a reality in the life of a believer. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 4.9. Paul says, now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. This is one of the, 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 the really the, the fruits, the benefits, the results of being born again. Is that we have a love for other Christians. We'll talk more about that as we, as we go through the message. So really, just by verse 22, by way of question, has your soul been purified? That's something we always got to ask ourselves, right? There's always, you know, especially the more people, the more people that gather to hear 
hear God's Word, hear the Gospel, there's always a higher chance of um, you know, somebody sitting in our midst who, who, who hasn't truly passed from death to life. So we always put that out there. Second thing we're going to look at, still in verse 22, the second or the end of verse 22 is the phrase. This is this is the imperative in the text today. Okay, so he says, "You you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren." And here's the imperative: now fervently love one another from the heart. So the second thing, second point, if you want to look at it that way, since you have obeyed the truth, since you have believed the gospel. Since God has purified your souls, since He has saved you, now you're to fervently love one another. Right? There's an element to it to where we do love other believers. But the command is even further. Now, He's saying fervently love one another. This is an action. This is something we're commanded to do. This love is the agape love here in this part of the text. Fervently love one another with this agape love. It's a love expressed by the will rather than just emotion. It's a choice. It's unconditional from the heart or a pure heart. Again, it's a heart, right, as a result of being made pure, clean from being purified through the gospel. So apart from the gospel, it's not even possible. This is really something that only Christians are capable of doing. Through the agape love. And he says fervently do this. Fervently. It's a psychological term, or a physiological term, meaning to stretch to the furthest limit of a muscle's capacity. That's the, that's the language of the meaning of this word. To stretch to the furthest limit of a muscle's capacity. In other words, to go all out in loving one another. It's really what we spent three months looking at through the one another's. Remember how we looked at the first one was love one another? And then we were trying to really by looking all at all the different one another's, we're really getting an idea of how to flesh that out. This is what that word means. Is to, is to do it to the full. You remember the one another guys? One that stuck to my mind was outdo one another. It's that whole idea guys, because of this agape love that God has given us, we have the ability to live this out. To fervently love one another. Not just in word. Not just with our affection. But really getting down to how we live. To flesh these things out. And the power of God through the agape love, there's not a limit to how we can love one another. And obviously there's a limit in what we can do. But... But God has placed it in our hearts to where we can fervently love one another. Peter uses this word in chapter 4, verse 8. He says, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. If you'll flip over just a few pages to your right in 1 John chapter 3, he speaks to this, this love that we're to have for one another. In 1 John 3, 16-18, he says this, We know love by this, that He, Christ, laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? 
Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. You hear the language of this? In verse 16, you know, we know love because He laid down His life for us. We're to do the same thing for the brethren. This is not just... I mean, yeah, if it came down to it, we should be willing to give up our very lives for each other. If it, if it means giving up our... You know, dying for our brother. But it, it doesn't even have to be that, guys. We need to be willing to give up our lives in a very practical sense for the brethren. This is what it looks like to fervently love. When you see your brother or your sister in need and you have the ability to help, guys... You have the ability to help. We have the ability to help when we see our brother or our sister in Christ. Obviously, we should love the world, but this is talking about a specific love for one another. You know, and we choose not to do that, guys. We really don't have an excuse to not love one another. Not just with our words, but with our deeds. What does he say in verse 18? Right? Let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed in truth. I think this is the idea of fervently loving one another. Sacrificial love. Maybe it means getting in your car and driving when you don't feel like it. Or maybe it means sacrificing some time. Or maybe it means, you know, it could mean myriad of things. Sacrificing your time, sacrificing your money, sacrificing your comfort at the time to love a brother or a sister that's in need. And And all of us are going to be on both ends of it. So we need to take heed that this is what He's commanding us to not just... We have this love for one another. Okay? I think the idea to understand that is you know, you meet another brother or sister who you... Maybe even from a different country, you have nothing in common and the affection is there, right? The fellowship, that's that's what He's talking about. The sincere love of the brethren. This here is taking it to a different level. This is doing life with one another. Loving one another. When, when we can, when we have the ability, and demonstrating it, not just with our mouth, but with our deeds. So in verse 22, we really see that the Gospel, it leads to obedience. That's what we see. What does dead, empty religion, false religion, what does it say? If I obey, God will love me. Whereas the Gospel says just the opposite, because God loves me, I will obey. That's what we're seeing here. It all starts with the Gospel. And thirdly, we're going to see, we're asked the question, why? Why should we fervently love one another? Really, the question was in a way already answered because because we've been purified. But now we really see even even maybe a a motive as well. Why? Why should we fervently love one another? Well, the very next verse, in verse 23, uh, for or because you have been born again. That's why. Because you've been born again. You've been born again. Why love one another? You remember guys, always in the Scriptures, action always follows you know, what God has done for us. We've been born again. That's what Peter's saying. You need to be fervently love one another because you have been born again. Again, and we know that Jesus said, "No, no person can see the kingdom of God unless he has been born again." Right? But he says, "You have been born again." He talked about this what, up in verse three. So we talked about it a little bit then. This passing from death to life. So what he's saying here is this: because of your new life, 
We're commanded to fervently love one another like this sacrificially because of our new life. It aligns with our new life in Christ. I mean, if we say we've been born again, we're born of the same Spirit, we have the same Father, and yet we refuse to love our brother or sister. Now he's saying because you've been born again. Over in 1 John, once again in chapter 3. This time in verse 9 and 10 and 14 and 15. John says, No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Verse 10. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And then verse 14 and 15. We know that we have passed out of death into life. This is one of the evidences. One of the evidences that we can know that we passed out of death into life. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. I know you guys have heard it. Maybe you've said it before in the past. But I know most of, most of us have heard it from people. I, I love Jesus. I'm a Christian. But I can't stand Christians. I hate the church. I hate being near them. There's something majorly wrong with that. And I would say you have the authority of Scripture of saying, no you don't. You do not love Jesus. If you don't love His people, if you have a, just a disdain for God's people... That says something about your spiritual condition. And so it, 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 it aligns with our new life in Christ. Fervently love one another, for you have been born again. We know that being born again is a monergistic work of God. It's God alone, right? We don't contribute to it. God raises us from the dead, gives us life. We read about it in Ezekiel 36. And the phrase, you have been born again, it's the perfect tense of the participle. I'm not going to try to pronounce the word, but it emphasizes a past, once again, a past accomplishment with ongoing results in the present. Having been born again. God has saved you, and there are results that are going to be evident. And in this case, we're seeing there's going to be a love for the brethren. So by what means are we born again? Really, this is, the, this is where we're starting to get into the, the heart of the message. Where I really struggle coming up with a title. But I went ahead and entitled it The Source of Our Love. Because the command is to love one another. Okay, that's really easy to see. We just looked at it. But what's the source of where this love comes from? I mean, obviously we know it's from God. But specifically in this text... He says, for you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable. That word sounds familiar, doesn't it? We looked at that last week, remember? We were redeemed with, not with anything that was perishable, right? But by the blood of Christ. And today we're looking at, we are born again. Not through seed, which is perishable. All of the seeds that Spurgeon uh, referred to in his, the first half of that illustration. None of the seeds of this world 
The seeds that what do the seeds of this world do? They produce grass and flowers that we're going to look at shortly, but they fade away. They're perishable. We're not born again through anything that's perishable, but but seed that is imperishable, meaning seed that is permanent and indestructible. That's the seed through the mean or by the means of verse twenty three. The living and enduring Word of God. That is by what means we have been born again. You have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through, or by the means of, the living and enduring Word of God. First of all, he says it's living. The Word of God is living. Hebrews 4.12 says this, For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You guys ever heard it said that, that the Word of God, you not only read it, but it reads you? That's the idea here. Um, I thought it was very applicable here to, to share the story of the, of the man that I talked with at the bus station this week that I shared with uh, the Wednesday night group. Um, I shared it on Facebook if any of y'all saw that. But it's, it really made me think of this. The, the Word in this verse in, in Hebrews 4.12 talking about the Word of God being living and able to judge the thoughts and intents of the heart. And so this man, he listened, his name Richard, pray for his salvation. But he listened to the preaching, he sat down, he was very friendly, I sat down, talked with him, very friendly, very open, um, you know, just listening to his story, saying he's a new, new to the faith, didn't grow up in church, you know, very, very, talking very highly of the Bible, not antagonistic of the Bible at all. Um, just that, you know, he, he loved the New Testament, hadn't read the Old. He loves ministering to people in the name of Jesus. And so I just listened to him. And after a while, he was, it was very clear that he was a uh, very open and very practicing homosexual currently. Uh, the more I listened to him, the more just really his mouth gave away his heart. Just very, very foul. And so I was thinking, this, this man is deceived. And, and, I, and I can't just let him walk away. I've got it. So I was just praying silently. And so after about 30 minutes, I just asked him, I said, Richard, can I share with you? Just, I just want to share with you a few scriptures because I love you, I care about you. Anyway, I approached him very gently. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. You know, uh, just read it to him. I, I, I didn't even really add anything to it. I just read it to him. He saw it on, black, on the page where it says, you know, do not be deceived, neither fornicator, adulterer, homosexual, da-da-da-da-da, will inherit the kingdom of God. I said, Richard... What is that saying? And, and, it, and again, this is what this part of this verse reminded me of. It was the Word of God that was judging him. The Word of God was saying to him, you're wrong, Richard. Your lifestyle is wrong. He says you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. So I just I pleaded with him. And Anyway, his whole countenance changed. He went from loving Jesus, loving the Bible, to saying, yeah, that, that's just written by men. And you're just a bigot. And it was because the Word of God was living and active 
And it was judging him and saying, you need to get right. And so that's what the Word of God does. His problem wasn't with me. His problem was with God's Word. And that's what I told him. I said, you got a problem with God's Word. So that's the power of the Word of God. And I will say, Michael, I think it was you Wednesday night that uh, when I I shared that story, Michael, great observance, Michael, he said, that sounds like talkative in the Pilgrim's Progress. And as we read that yesterday morning, Trish and I were, you know, it wasn't exactly alike, but his response to faithful, it was very similar. Very similar. If you guys read chapter 5, we'll talk about it today, but talkative was, oh, you're judging me. And that's exactly Hey, that's what Richard was saying. I said, sir, all I did was read you God's Word that you said you believe. So anyway, we can see it right there. That's an example of what it does. It's living. Okay, We'll talk about it being enduring when we look at verse 25. And so the, the, the whole idea, guys, right, that we're born again, I think all of us in here would, would understand this. Most of us would have this understanding that really this whole idea that, we're, that we have been born again through the Word of God, right? And so we, as what you would call Reformed Christians, we would say yes and amen, right? It's through God's Word. The preaching of God's Word. And that's why we need to proclaim the Word of God. It's, it's the power of God into salvation. And so it should greatly affect our evangelism and our preaching, should it not? This understanding, right? That it's the Word of God that is the means that God uses. That's why... Uh, the, the, the gentleman who was with me, Brother Jack, when he, got, he was with me down there the other day, and we both agreed. That is precisely what Richard needed to hear. Because he's living in, a, he's living in deception. He needed to understand that, that Richard, you, hey, you're deceived, man. Listen to what God's Word says. And, 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 and realize that He commands you to repent. And so we trust in God's Word in our preaching and in our salvation to to change hearts, to transform lives. What is our ultimate trust in? Are we to be loving? Absolutely. Are we to do good deeds? Absolutely. Are we to feed and clothe? Absolutely. Yes and amen. But none of these things is what produces the new birth. What do we trust in? Romans 10.17 Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. Right? That's it. What's the name of our church again? Romans 1.16. We're going to always go back to that. Because that's what our hope is in. It's in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. The Word of Christ. The Gospel. Charles Spurgeon says this, I do believe we slander Christ when we think we are to draw the people by something else but the preaching of Christ crucified. I think Spurgeon's idea when he uses the word draw there, he's talking about people being drawn to the Father. Obviously, we can have a cookout and hope people show up. But our hope of people being drawn to the Father shouldn't be in the hamburger. It should be in the Gospel. I think that's what Spurgeon's saying. I posted that Scripture on Facebook a week or two ago and a lady responded and said, Something about some I don't remember what exactly, but something about um, you know people say that I shouldn't invite people over for dinner because it violates that, and I was like, no, invite them over for dinner, feed them, and share the gospel with them. 
Right? I mean, it's not real complicated. Definitely love indeed in our, in our deeds by what we do. The, the more loving, the more ways we can communicate tangible love. Amen. But if you give somebody who is lost, especially somebody who maybe doesn't understand the Gospel, never heard the Gospel, you know, let's just say mission work, you go to another country where people desperately need the Gospel, but they're hungry at the same time and you feed them but never share the truth, that's not, that's not evangelism, that's not missions. Feed the people food and then the bread of life. I think we all understand that. So fourthly, in verses 24 and 25, so in verse 23, He, he, he gave the, uh, the reason why we should fervently love one another, right? It's because we've been born again. That's our new identity. That matches our identity in Christ, our new life in Christ. And, it, and it's through the living and enduring Word of God. And then in verse 24, He says, for, you could, you could put right next to it, for it is written, right? Peter's doing the same thing that he did in verse 16 where he says, uh, where he said, be holy, right? For it is written. What, what's Peter doing? He is, he is, again, claiming that his authority, what he's been saying, he's, get, he's getting his authority from the Scriptures. That's what he's saying. For it is written. In other words, he's going to quote part of Isaiah here, and you can see the prophet Isaiah, obviously that's the Scriptures they had at the time, is saying the very same thing. And so Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is agreeing with Scripture. But he says, for, or for, it is written. Uh, before we move on, you know, this whole idea of him, of him claiming his sole authority from Scripture, what does that remind us of, guys? One of the solas, sola scriptura, Scripture alone. That's what Peter's saying. Scripture alone. Don't be afraid to say that. That's really what it came down to between Richard and myself. Is he and this again? This is a man who claimed to believe the scriptures, claimed to love Christ, love the Bible, and then just a few minutes later, he's saying, "You believe that book? That's written by men." And I said, "Yes, I believe that book. This is this is my sole authority." And so, don't be afraid. We have to do that. That is our authority. Scripture alone. It's not scripture plus your opinion. It's scripture alone. And so he says, for. Verse 24, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off. So the first thing we're going to see here, he says all flesh, just think of every person. I mean really every creature, but we're talking about people here. Every person, all flesh. Nobody's an exception. The grass, the meaning of the grass, it's here today and gone tomorrow, right? We haven't seen a whole lot of that this summer, but what are most summers like? If you have grass in your front yard in the middle of July and August and you don't water it, you can see it perish within a day or two. Right? It goes from green to turning brown. So God has given us a clear picture comparing our life to the grass. It's here today, gone tomorrow. And so the first thing we can see in this, in this passage, guys, is that life is fleeting. Life is very, very fleeting. In Job 14, verses 1 and 2. Listen to Job. Same language. 
Man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. Like a flower, he comes forth and withers. He also flees like a shadow and does not remain. You know what I would like you guys to remember from that simple passage there, or really what we're looking at today, is when you see the grass, when you see the flowers of the field, or in this case, when you see a shadow, let it remind you of how fleeting our life is. It's a good illustration to use while you're sharing the Gospel with somebody. I mean, obviously it's in Scripture. But it's a reminder, guys. We see our shadow. We see the flowers spring up. We see our breath. All of these things are to remind us that our life is fleeting. It's like a vapor. So the word glory, really just representing the flower, right? All its glory, like the flower of the grass, the the, the flower is what? It's beautiful, right? The grass. The grass can be beautiful, but the flowers, that's what's beautiful. You can see the flowers. You see flower beds. And, and there's a beauty to it. That's what he's comparing to the glory of man. When you think about the, the, the glory that comes with humanity. The, the human beauty. Outward beauty. The strength. Physical strength. Power. Wealth. Splendor. Fame. All of these things fall under that glory. You think about, now we're not talking about inner beauty, right? God says true beauty is inside. But when you think about just outer beauty, just physical outer beauty, think of, a, think of an attractive woman that's beautiful when she's young. And again, we're just talking about outer beauty. And, and I'm sorry, we can, you know, what happens when you get older? Well, I say women and men, the outer beauty fades away, right? I know some of you don't want to admit it. But it does. Obviously, it's... Think about strength. You know, you think about Arnold Schwarzenegger, the most perfectly built man ever that one time. Hey, man, he's kind of sagging now. <laughs> I've seen him here lately, and he's... Yeah. Because all these pictures, they go through Facebook, you see these... It's here recently, all these bodybuilders, and you'll see Arnold, and you see him now, and you're like, man, you're fading. <laughs> Your glory's fading. But you think of those with power, those with wealth, Fame. Some of these things fade right in front of our eyes. Some of them don't fade until eternity. When you think of riches, you know? What, what is he saying? These things are short-lived. Arnold may have been the most perfectly built man at one time, but he's not now. He's starting to look like a flabby old man. You know, but listen to James. Turn over to James, just a few pages to your left. James chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. We see the, the glory of wealth. James chapter 1, verse 10 and 11. And the rich man is to glory in his humiliation. Because like flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass. And its flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too is the rich man in the midst of his pers- oh, in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. That's a foolish thing to do is to pursue riches. It's going to fade away. Many people right in the middle of their pursuit, what does God say to him? Tonight your soul 
will be required of you. You fool. So sometimes these things fade away. We can see them very physically. But sometimes it's going to fade away and they're going to be shocked. They're going to be building bigger barns, bigger bank accounts, not knowing that tonight their soul will be required. So this glory of man, it fades away like a flower of the grass. Grass is here today and gone tomorrow. And so are we. So are we. So the the next thing we see in verse 25 is um, that I told you we would see in verse 25 is that God's Word, we already looked that it's living and it's also eternal. It's eternal. It endures forever. God's Word endures forever. It is eternal. The Word of the Lord endures forever. So when compared... When compared to that which is temporal, that's what Peter's doing. He's trying to help his readers see the greatness of our God. We've seen that in this, really this whole chapter 1. The greatness of our God. The greatness of His Word that we're seeing today. The greatness of our salvation that we've looked at, right? Our inheritance, that's, it's secure, it's protected. We're redeemed with the blood of Christ. Nothing of this world, not good works, not false religion, Not our prayers. Nothing redeems us but the blood of Christ. And so he's making this comparison. These these temporal things. These things that are perishable. And he's trying to help his readers see how great our salvation is. How great our God is. He says our inheritance in verse 4 is imperishable. Right? Just like the blood of Christ that redeemed us. It's imperishable. We're born again through the seed that's imperishable. Our inheritance is imperishable. This verse, in verses 24 and 25, guys, it's, it's quoted from Isaiah chapter 40. You don't need to turn there. You maybe look at it later. But Isaiah, if you look at that passage, the, the text I believe that he's quoting was Isaiah 40 verses 6 and 7, if I'm not mistaken. But that whole passage, verses 1 through 11, Isaiah was comforting okay, the exiled people of God during his day. God gives him a command in verse 40, verse 1. He says, comfort my people. These same people who were exiled. The people of Judah under the oppression of the Babylonians. That's the context of that passage. Very similar, right? What's Peter doing? He's comforting those who have been exiled. These Christians who have been exiled and scattered around Rome under persecution, fleeing for their life. So in verse 1, God says, Comfort my people, Isaiah 40, verse 1. In verse 5, the Lord says, The Lord has spoken and His glory will be revealed. I want, you to, I want you to see the similarities of the passage in Isaiah, even the context and what Peter's doing here. In verse 6 and 7, Isaiah, it's where he, we get our passage here. He talks about all flesh is like grass. And, and what he's saying, guys, remember, these... These saints of old, they were being persecuted. They were under the bondage of the Babylonians. And the prophet Isaiah, under the command of the Lord, he's really telling them in many ways the same thing. Or shall I say, Peter's doing the same thing that Isaiah was. Peter's whole idea is to comfort these believers who have been scattered. Isaiah was comforting these believers who are in captivity. He was reminding them that all flesh is like grass. 
Even these Babylonians who are so fierce. And verse 10 in Isaiah chapter 40 says, The Lord will come with might. Think about what Peter's been saying many times. He's saying, he's saying, have your hope in the revelation of Jesus Christ when He appears. He's going to come with might. This is temporary. Your suffering is temporary. So think of all of the glitter, all of the pomp of the Roman culture, right? You think of Nero and how he would have these Christians burned like human torches sewed into animal skins and to be devoured by the animals. He thought he was a god. All of their pomp, all of their glitter will one day perish. All flesh is like grass. Including us, right? Peter's reminding his readers that you're like the grass. But also, all of these Romans who are persecuting you, they're like grass. They're going to perish. So what would these kind of reminders do? This would embolden them. Remember, they're under persecution, guys. This would embolden them to hold fast to the Word of God, right? Your persecutors, they're like grass. All of their glory of Nero, it's like grass. It's going to, it's going to wither. But the Word of the Lord endures forever. This Word that He's been preaching to them... I mean, think about it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then He goes on to His inheritance. This is the enduring living Word of God. This is what's going to last. God's promise for you. Christ is coming back. This is what's going to endure. The promises of God. They can endure the hostility knowing, right? Like Job said, it's going to be short-lived. The persecution is going to be short-lived. But the phrase, the Word of the Lord endures forever. Have there not been many evil, wicked men down through the ages who did their best to eliminate God's Word? Right? We see it. You study history. All the, all the book burning, the Bible burning, and those type of things. The, these wicked kings that rise up, right? Listen to this account. Some of you may have heard this before, but the French philosopher Voltaire, a skeptic who destroyed the faith of many people. That's what he lived for, like a lot of your college professors. He boasted that in a hundred years of his death, the Bible would disappear from the face of the earth. Voltaire, Voltaire died in 1728, but the Bible lives on. Amen? What's, what's interesting about that story, the irony of, of history, which we know, what is history? His story. You know, in case sometimes, remember guys, these things don't happen by chance. I think God sometimes, He just has a sense of humor. The irony of this story of history is that 50 years after His death, the Geneva Bible Society moved into his former house and used his printing press to print thousands of Bibles. His Word endures forever. It's a futile thing to try to eliminate something that is living and is forever. 
that comes from the living God. Let that be a reminder, guys. Don't be intimidated by, oh, it's written by men. Remember, that's why I shared the story of Richard. I want you to remember where the arguments are truly coming from. It's coming. It's a moral argument. He didn't like what the Bible said about his sin. And that's the way it is with people who argue against God's Word. What's really going on down deep is they don't like what it says. Nobody can disprove anything in the Bible. When you study history, scientific evidence, all of it, it all aligns with the Bible. But it's living, it's powerful, and endures forever. And so, beloved, in closing, this world is temporal, right? That's what we're seeing. This world that we live in is temporal. The persecution, again, that we will face. Okay, I don't think it's going out on much of a limb for me to say that. The persecution that we will face. We, we do face, but we will face. I just want you to just get it down in your heart. That's why we're going through this. It will be short-lived. That's the context of what Peter's writing to these believers who are persecuted. It's short-lived. God's Word endures forever. This world will perish. But the Word of the Lord endures forever. The Word by which you were born again, right? The very Word that caused you to be born again is enduring and will live forever. The Word, in verse 25, the Word, the Gospel, which was preached to you, it's living and enduring. Not only is God's Word living and enduring, guys, remember, you can never separate God from His Word. Ever. What is Christ called? The Word. Listen to what Daniel or it says in Daniel, uh, it's actually Darius the king, after, after the lion's den, listen to what Darius the king says. Okay, what are we seeing in our text? That God's Word is living and enduring. The king says of the one true God, He is the living God and enduring forever. You cannot separate God from His Word. He says, And His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed, and His dominion will be forever. So no skeptic or no communist party is going to eliminate God's Word. It endures forever. Take hope in it. Take hope in God's Word. If it causes people to call you a stupid fool, then let them call you a stupid fool. Because the Word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And it is living and it endures forever. Our living and enduring God and His, and His living and enduring Word, beloved, really back to the title of our message, it is the source for our loving one another. It caused us to be born again, right? We didn't really talk about it in depth, but it's, it's also our source of sanctification. What did Jesus say? Sanctify them by the truth. And what did He say is the truth? Your Word is truth. So it's the source for everything in our life. In this case, we love one another. We've been born again through this Word. We have His Word. We looked at one of some of the one another's. If you forget what it looks like to flesh it out, go back and look at some of the one another's. Go back and listen 
to some of the one another's because we forget these things. What does it look like specifically? How do we love one another? And so, really lastly, guys, this is the God. This is the God in whom you believe. This one that is living. This one that endures forever. He has shed His love abroad in our hearts. Has He not? The love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. And He has called us to fervently love one another. And beloved, He has given us all we need through His Holy Spirit and through His Word for us to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord, for reminding us once again the hope that we have in Christ. Lord, that, that which is foolish to this world, Lord, we know it, it's our hope. It's, our, it's the power of God unto salvation, Lord. And it's the very means that You use to save Your people, Lord. And that is why it's, it's, such, it's such an imperative for us, Lord, to, to, to broadcast Your Word, Lord, in, in whatever way we can do it, Lord, by whatever means, because it's, it's through the foolishness of, of preaching, through the foolishness of the message that is preached, that You save those who believe. So Father, I thank You for these reminders. I pray that You would sanctify us continually through Your Word. Lord, I pray for everybody in here, God, that they would, wherever they're at, Lord, in their walk with You, wherever they're at in their daily reading, Lord, that they would not walk in condemnation. Father, that they would start, even today, even tomorrow, and just being in Your Word every day. Lord, whether it's one chapter, whether it's one verse, to, to meditate and to, to bathe in Your Word, to to find our hope and our comfort in Your Word. Lord, we thank You for Your Word, God. Thank You, Lord, that You haven't called us to be the smartest or the most clever. You've called us to be faithful and to proclaim Your Word. Your Word, like Spurgeon said, it's, it's, like, a, it's like a lion that, that just needs to be let out of the cage and it will accomplish it, its purpose. We thank You and love You. In Christ's name, Amen.